open to your Bibles, please, to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, as we begin this study of Paul's letter to the Ephesians about the body of Christ. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 14. And I would encourage you to take notes because this is a a really, really wonderful chapter. There's a lot here to learn from. I don't have to tell you that we are living in a time when people are troubled and they're very rebellious. Today there is no king in Israel because the nation chose Barabbas instead of Jesus. They said, we will not have this man, speaking of Jesus, to reign over us. And because there's no king in Israel, people are rebelling against God and they're doing whatever they please. And it's going to be that way until the king returns and takes his throne on earth. Republicans and Democrats are so far apart in what they stand for, they can't even find some common cause to agree on. We see gas prices are unstable. I read last night about the economy. The New York Times said that the economy is in a strange place right now. I've never heard that before. I heard it's either good or bad, but it's in a strange place right now. Job growth is slowing, but demand for workers is strong. Racial tension like never before. It's bad. Civil unrest. Violence is rampant, and it's everywhere. The homeless problem seems to be getting worse with no real solution in sight. Our borders are a mess. We are are now having to go out into public, that is, theaters, amusement parks, malls, sporting events with one eye on what we're doing and the other eye watching for strange behavior. We're afraid to leave our children alone or out of our sight for even five seconds, fearing the worst. We even have to walk them into the bathroom in restaurants. And in public places, we have to accompany them them everywhere. And we are now told to arm ourselves. And praise God for the Second Amendment, regardless of your stance on gun ownership. Because those who want one can have one, and those who don't want one don't have to have one. The world is ready to have a nervous breakdown due to its spiritual breakdown. So what do we do? How do we react to all of this? Is there anything you, the church, can do to help calm the fears with what's going on? Can we make a difference in this unstable and dangerous world? Or has the church, and I'm going to keep emphasizing this, or has the church, you, just become like all the other institutions of the world, insignificant and ineffective. When Paul wrote to the Christians at Ephesus, they faced a lot of the same problems. And they asked a lot of the same questions. 
Ephesus was a city in the Roman province of Asia. And it had political problems. And it was unstable. And they had, uncivil, they had civil unrest. They had crime. Ephesus was radically changing. Half the people were slaves. Bought and traded like animals with no hope of ever being free. And most of the people had to, had to, had to scrape out a living. Doing it as farmers, merchants, and common laborers. The city was well known for its immorality. Ephesus was the center of worship for the sex goddess Diana of the Ephesians. The Roman soldiers were cruel and they were ready to stop, to go and stop any disorder with cold-blooded murder. Nero was the emperor and he was wicked, he was savage, and he was sickening to the empire. Paul, the apostle Paul, was a prisoner in Rome when he wrote this letter. And he was waiting to be called in front of Nero. And while he was in Rome, he was allowed to live in his own rented house. But he couldn't go wherever he wanted to go in the city. He was chained to a Roman soldier 24 hours a day. And Paul saw the, saw the immoral lifestyle in Rome. And he knew the same conditions existed far away in Ephesus. So he would tell the Christians, he would tell them what to do in this letter to them. Or what would he tell them to do in his letter? Paul's answer was powerful and it was very helpful. He said in Ephesians chapter 4 verses 1 through 3, I therefore the prisoner of the Lord beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. What is Paul telling the church in Ephesus? And remember last time we were together, I said, put your city there or your church there. What is Paul telling the church in Covina? What is he telling the church Calvary Chapel Cornerstone. With all the different social needs that had to be dealt with. What answer does he give to those calling for justice and help for the oppression that's all around them? Is he telling us to revolt? Is he telling us to start a revolution and overthrow the government? No. Paul's answer is very simple. Do what God has called you to do. Obey your orders. Don't deviate from God's plan. Follow your Lord. In Paul's counsel, he clearly recognizes the true nature and function of the church. It's not a human organization that's expected to come up with its own plan and set its own goals. It's not a self-governing organization and operation. Its, an, its existence and strength is not based on how many people there are in the church. Instead, it's a body. It's a body of believers. It's you. You are called to have a special relationship with God. And in this letter, Paul uses several graphic words to help us to see the relationship between God and you, the church. And one of those words is a body. A body. Paul says it's a body controlled by its head. 
Now, it would be very sad, a very sad thing if your body refused to do what the head told it to do. In the human body, when nerves are damaged, they can't respond to what the brain tells it to do. And when you, the church, don't respond to your head, Jesus Christ, it's just as sad as the human body that can't respond to the head's commands. You are also a temple. A temple. You, the church, are a temple. Only for the use and home of the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit has the right to do with that temple as He wills. You're also an army under the king's orders. And think about it, and those who have been in the military understand this completely. Think about it. What good is an army that won't obey its leader's orders? Can you imagine in a time of battle, everybody doing what they felt they wanted to do? It would be useless. That army, would, that, that would be useless. So Paul says to you, the church, obey your orders, follow your commander-in-chief, the captain of your salvation. Also, Paul says to follow God's strategy. Paul didn't just tell the Ephesians what to do. Paul was an example to them of what to do. After he spent two years in prison in Caesarea, he was sent on a dangerous trip to Rome that ended in shipwreck on the island of Malta. And when he finally got to Rome, as a prisoner of the emperor, we never hear Paul talk about himself being a prisoner of Caesar. He says, I'm a prisoner of the Lord. Paul doesn't worry about being chained up in prison. He doesn't complain about his lousy conditions. In Philippians, we read the same thing. Paul doesn't think about himself as anybody's prisoner, but the Lord's prisoner. Because you see, Paul knows there's a higher authority than Caesar. Whatever happened to Paul, he knew it was of the Lord. And Caesar couldn't do a thing to him unless Jesus allowed it. Paul doesn't see chains. He doesn't see the guard or the justice system. He doesn't see his miserable life and its conditions. All he sees is Jesus controlling all. All things in his life. In 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul said this. We don't look at the troubles we can see right now. Rather, we look forward to what we haven't seen. Because the troubles we see will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. Now, why does Paul feel like this? Why does he have this outlook? Because this was where, where, where basic truth is found. This is where the real power lives. Jesus had the same attitude when he stood in front of Pontius Pilate. He said to him in John 19, verse 10 and 11, Don't you know that I have power to crucify you? Pontius Pilate speaking to Jesus. Don't you know I have power to crucify you and power to release you? And Jesus answered Pontius Pilate, You could have no power at all against me unless it had been given to you from above. A lot of the confusion that's in the church today is because you've been, the church, we've been, and are still looking at the things that are seen. We're looking at the circumstances. 
instead of the things that are not seen. Hebrews 12, 2 says, because of the joy awaiting him, that is the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross and, and, and you know, disregarding its shame. You know, some people think, well, you know, when it says that, that the joy that was set before him, he'd endured the cross, that thinking that, oh, Jesus was so happy because he was going to the cross and, and you know, he was enjoying the cross. Well, it wasn't that. It says that he in, he, with joy he endured the cross because he knew what was going to be the results after the cross. The joy was after the cross, not on the cross. He endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. What the results of the cross would bring. That's what he looked forward to. Not the the circumstances that were before him. And that's the thing that we do. We look at our circumstances and not what those things will turn out to be as we move forward. You see a suffering world. You see people in need everywhere. You see hate. You see prejudice, you see injustice, you see misery everywhere you go. So what should we do? What should the church do? Nobody really knows for sure because it's such a huge problem. The normal reaction is just do something, anything. And that makes sense because that's the way man thinks. But human thinking is shallow. You only see the problem and not the cause. So you treat the problem and not what's causing it. So the problem goes on and on and on and you wonder why. You have to pay close attention to what Paul said in Ephesians 4.1. Walk worthy of the calling with, with which you were called. The Lord Jesus who has called you sees life a lot more clearly than you and I do. He's created a plan that will actually remove the root cause of man's darkness and misery. He's not, he won't patch it up. He's not going to patch it up. He's going to remove it. When you, the church, are faithful to your calling, you become a healing instrument. And you are able to bring neighborhoods, societies, nations to a healthier a healthier moral living. You, the church, are here to start a revolution. The false church is here to oppose it. But you, true Christians, actually help the cause of false Christianity when by ignorance or mistaken enthusiasm that is zeal without knowledge, you don't follow God's plan and you disobey your divine calling. Man cannot add to or improve God's program. And God didn't leave us in the dark about what our calling is. In chapters 1 through 3, chapters 1 through 3 are, 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 are the purpose for describing your calling. And it's also described in other places in the New Testament. If you and I, Christians, are going to give intelligent obedience to our Lord, we have to make it our top priority to understand what He wants you to be and what He wants you to do. 
Men's plans are based on their limited understanding. They can only make plans based on what they know and on limited knowledge. And the best man can do is just guess what Jesus would do. And you you remember back some years ago, there was the big, you know, they had these braces. What would Jesus do? We don't know. Because what you're actually saying, okay, I've got to try to figure out what would Jesus do. But I only have limited knowledge. I can only guess what Jesus would do. He has perfect knowledge of every situation, so he would know exactly what to do. I mean, it was, it was, it was a good thought, what would Jesus do? But we have no idea. Because we don't have perfect knowledge. We don't understand the situation for why it's taking place. That's why we, we, we can't do any. We have limited knowledge. And so Jesus has perfect knowledge. He knows all things. So again, God's strategy, his calling on your life is based on a totally perfect understanding of basic and simple reality. The Christian's opinion of all the world's problems, wars between nations, Two wars in each person's heart is accurate because it reflects a true understanding of man's condition. The New Testament letters always start with the truth, what we call doctrine. The New Testament writers bring us back to reality, brings us back to the basics. And then, based on that truth, they go on to suggest certain useful applications. But again, how foolish it is to start with anything but truth. In the opening chapters of Ephesians, Paul makes several clear statements about your purpose. Purpose of the church. And not just your purpose for eternity, but your purpose here, right now. So we're going to look at some of the things that Paul says about your nature, my nature and purpose, the church. So let's begin now with verses 1 and 2 of Ephesians 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Faithful in Christ Jesus. I mean, think of it. What an honor to be called faithful in Christ Jesus. Can people say that about you and me? What would it take for others to see you as faithful to Jesus Christ? Stay faithful one day at a time. Faithfully obey even in the smallest things in life. And then you'll be known as a person who's faithful to the Lord. Verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ. What Paul is saying here is that in Christ, you have all the benefits of knowing God. Chosen for salvation, adopted as his child, forgiveness of sins, You have insight, the gifts of the Spirit, power to do God's will, and the hope of living forever with Jesus. 
because you have an intimate relationship with Christ, you can enjoy these blessings now. The heavenly places mentioned here. <clears throat> the heavenly places means that these blessings are eternal. They're not temporal. The blessings come from Christ's spiritual realm, not the earthly realm of the goddess Diana. Look at verse 4. <clears throat> Just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. Here's the first purpose of the church. Here's your first purpose. You are to reflect God's holiness. The first blessing, He chose us. The Holy Spirit makes it clear that you weren't something that God thought about later on in time. He planned it that way before the world was created. He chose you before the world was created. What's, what's God's first concern for you, the church? It's not what you do, it's what you are. Being must always go before doing. Being must always go before doing because what you are determines what you do. And you have to understand the moral character of God's people to understand the nature of the church. As a Christian, we are to be a moral example to this world. We are to reflect the pure character and holiness of Jesus. Our goal as Christians is to be people of unbending, uncompromising character and integrity and morality, even in the smallest things. And then you'll be faithful in the bigger things. As Christians, you're called to be holy and without blame before God inside and out. You are to reflect His holiness. This is one of the purposes of the church. To reflect His holiness. When our, inner, when, our, when our inner and outer life matches, then we'll show the purity and the righteousness of God to a world that's watching. They're watching you. They're watching the church. Look at verses 5, 6, and 12. Having predestined us to adoption as sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, by which he made us accepted in the beloved. Go to verse 12 now. That we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Here's the second blessing. We're accepted in the beloved. And the second purpose is to show God's glory. So... Understand, your first duty is not to be happy. Your first duty is not to be happy. I mean, our happiness is important to God. But that's not your first line of duty. God is more concerned about your holiness than He is your happiness. Because without holiness, you will not see God. Hebrews twelve fourteen says it very clearly. Without holiness, no man shall see God. And more accurately, you have been chosen by God so that through your life, His glory is shown to the world. What's God's, what God, what's God's glory? It's God Himself. It's the revelation of what God is and what He does. The problem with the world is that it doesn't know God. 
It has no understanding of him. In all of the world's searchings and wanderings, in all of its attempts to find truth, it still doesn't know God. But the glory of God is to reveal himself, to show the world what he's like. And that's why Jesus came, to show the world what, Jesus, what, what God is like. And when the works of God and the nature of God are shown through you, through us, the church, then he's glorified. God calls you, the church, he calls you to show the world the glory of God's character, which is his wonder, his splendor, his magnificence, and his beauty. And then Paul mentions this same thing again in verses 22 through 23. Paul says all that Jesus is, that is all of Jesus' fullness, is to be seen in us, is to be seen in his body. Who is his body? Again, you, the church. The secret of the church is that Jesus lives in it and the message that you're to give to the world is to declare him, to talk to people about Jesus. And Paul describes this secret of the truth again in chapter 2, verses 19 through 22. There's the holy mystery of the church. It's the dwelling place of God. He lives in his people. He lives in his people. That's the great calling of the church, to make visible the invisible Christ. Paul said his job was to make known the manifold wisdom of God that, uh, that it might be made known by the church. This is our job, the job of the church, to make known the manifold wisdom of God. So these verses make it very clear that your calling the church's calling is to declare in word and, and, in, and show indeed by your life the character of Christ who lives in you, his people. We're to tell others about the reality of, of this, this radically change in nature, this life-changing encounter with a living Christ to show that, that, to show that change by a selfless, love-filled life. And until we've done that, nothing else we do will be effective for God. That's your calling. That's the church's calling. Paul talks about that when he writes in Ephesians 4.1, I beseech you, walk worthy of the calling with which you were called. Walk worthy means to walk after a godly sort, to walk in a godly way. The third purpose of the church, you are called to be a witness to Christ. You are called to be a witness to Christ. A witness is somebody who declares and demonstrates. Peter said in 1 Peter 2.9, But you are a chosen uh, generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. That's your main job as Christians. Jesus lives in you so that you can demonstrate his life and his character who lives in you. The responsibility to fulfill this calling of the church belongs to every true Christian. All who are called and all who are dwelt, indwelt by the Holy Spirit are expected to fulfill their calling in front of this world. 
This is the clear word that Paul gives all through the letter of Ephesians. It's your responsibility and mine to always witness of Christ. But then here's the age-old problem that we've always seen is, is, is the counterfeit Christians. It's easy for you to talk. It's easy for someone to talk about showing the character of Christ and to say great things about the character of Christ. But many unbelievers, watching Christians, see that the picture that they give isn't even close to the biblical picture of Jesus. And that's why Paul carefully describes real Christ-like character in specific words. Like in Ephesians 4, 2 through 3. Let us walk worthy of our calling with all lowliness and gentleness, with long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring. That means spare no effort to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Those These are the true signs of Jesus in our life. Lowliness or meekness, gentleness, long-suffering, bearing with one another in love, and doing all that we can to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Again, these are the true signs of Jesus in our life. You work and you spend your life for the Lord of the church and not the church. You work and you spend your life for the Lord. For the Lord of the church, not the church. You don't need to gain power in the eyes of the world. He's already given you all the power that you need from Christ in you. You, the church, are to show real social change by turning away from evil and and practicing righteousness. And when you do, you plant those seeds of truth that will take root in society. And in due time, it will bring change. Verses 7 and 8. In Him, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence. Yeah, I'll stop there. In all wisdom and prudence. In seven th- in seven verse, verses 7 through 8, we have the third blessing. We have redemption. In the Old Testament, forgiveness was given on the basis of the shedding of an animal's blood. Now we're forgiven on the basis of the shedding of Christ's blood, who was the perfect sacrifice. Verse 8 says, He he showered His kindness on us along with all wisdom and understanding. Verses 9 and 10. Having made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, he might gather together in one all things in Christ, which are in heaven and which are on earth in him. This is the fourth blessing in verses 9 through 10. Having made known to us the mystery of his will. Now, God wasn't purposely keeping his plan a secret. But his plan for the world couldn't be totally understood until Jesus rose from the dead. His purpose for sending Jesus Christ was to unite Jews and Gentiles in one body with Christ as the head. And a lot of people still don't understand God's plan. But when the time is right, Paul said, in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he's going to bring us together to be with him forever. And then everybody will understand. 
And on that day, all people are going to bow to Jesus as Lord, either because they love him or because they fear him, because they fear his power. Verses 11 and 12. In him also we have obtained an an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Here's the fifth blessing. We have obtained this inheritance. God does as he pleases, is what it says here. He doesn't ask for any man's advice. It says he does everything, notice, according to the counsel of his own will. He doesn't need our input. He doesn't need a committee. He doesn't need anybody to help him in what he does. Think about it. You've been destined and appointed to live to bring glory to God. He chose you in advance to do that. And now let's close with verses 13 and 14. In him you also trusted after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. Here's the sixth blessing, sealed with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is God's seal that says you belong to him. And his deposit, it's his deposit guaranteeing that he'll do what he promised. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment, a deposit, a legal signature on a contract. The presence of the Holy Spirit in you, it shows the genuineness of your faith. And it proves that you're God's child and, and promises, he promises you eternal life. His power works in you to transform you. And what you experience now is a taste of the total change you'll experience in eternity. This is the third time we see the words, the praise of his glory. Verses 6, 12, and 14. It's mentioned here in this section. The glory there, of the glory here, the praise of his glory, has to do with the work of the Holy Spirit, which secures the believer's safety for eternity. But... The security of the believer glorifies God, but those who reject that security dishonors God because they make salvation a works thing and not of grace. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. And Lord, we thank you, Father, for your word. We thank you, God, for this truth that Paul has given us. And Lord, may it really bring to light who we are, who we're supposed to be, what we're supposed to be, and what we're supposed to do, Father. And Lord, help us get back to basics, Lord. And Father, maybe it's a time for self-examination, Father, to see who we are, where we are, and what are we doing. Are we just going to church, or are we the church? And Father, if the Spirit spoke into our heart to seek forgiveness, to say, Lord, I, I've just been going to church. I need to be the church. I need to do what you've called me to do, Lord. And I need to be what you've called me to be. I need to allow the Holy Spirit to 
to dwell in me and to reign in my life. Lord, help me to do what I've been called to do. Help me to obey and to follow you, Lord, and make you my top priority. So, Lord, may we consider that. May we bring it to life. May you, again, just show, my, show me my heart, Lord, that I might get on the right track, the right path, to follow you with all that I am, with all that you've given me, Lord. Father, we thank you for this wonderful book, and we look forward to the days ahead, Lord. We thank you for the offering that we will receive this morning, Father. And again, we thank you for your goodness, your generosity, Lord. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.